Today's reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, from the New Living Translation. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, church family. I... uh, always um, recognize that on a Sunday where I'm speaking and all the children are in here, um, sometimes that can present a challenge to you parents to, uh, to pay attention to the words of wisdom that I'm about to share. And uh, you laugh like I didn't. Um, if you have children who did not receive a word search and would like one, I think the ushers still have a few. You can just raise your hand and they'll bring one to you. And um, this will uh, give them something to do. And it's based on the passage that Ryan just read for us. And so they will be immersed in the scriptures, as it were, as well. There is a verse, just a couple of verses previous to that which Ryan read, in verse 17, that is, I think, a good transition point for us to start thinking about what we just participated together and experienced in. Um, There's a verse there in verse 17, and it's this. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. It's not a great verse. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. In other words, when we honestly confess and agree with God to turn from our sins, God turns to us and says, I am going to do something that everybody thought was impossible for a God who is all-knowing. That is, I am going to forget. I'm going to choose to forget your sins. It's an amazing truth, really. Because so many of us have memories and past hurts and regrets that need to be reminded, I think, just simply this morning of God's forgiveness. That in the moments that we shared this morning as we were preparing to take those elements, and and Pastor Ken led us, and we're praying, and we're thinking about those things that that maybe have come between us and God in some ways. They've they've changed our, they haven't broken the relationship, but they've just made it in, in a way that it just isn't what it could be and should be. And God says, I'm going to choose to forget. And he forgives. Forgiveness is a huge gift. It's God's gift to us and a gift that we have the privilege of sharing to one another, with one another. Forgiveness is also a choice. It's a choice that we then make to remember no more. It's a choice to to release yourself and the person who maybe has sinned against you from the dark grip of sin and the poison of, of bitterness. Forgiveness says, 
I will no longer hold this against you. Forgiveness. It's an amazing, life-changing, practical, theological truth that can impact our lives. And how is this forgiveness possible? Simply because of what we remembered this morning. That Jesus Christ, a perfect, once-and-for-all sacrifice, was nailed to an old wooden cross and died in excruciating death to pay the penalty for our sin and to make forgiveness possible. And when Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant where he says in Matthew, records this, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. There's something very significant about communion. It's not just something that we set aside on our sort of monthly calendar, the first Sunday of each month, we're going to gather around this table and have communion. Just make it another part of our Sunday routine. But when we take these elements, it gives us an opportunity and it reminds us of all of what Jesus has done for us. It provides us an opportunity then to say thank you. Because as we remember what Jesus has done, we're reminded of the forgiveness of sins. And the response to that is, thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. And as we remember Christ's body, we're also reminded of the body of Christ. What the Bible refers to as the church. And so what we just participated in is really a body meal. It's a celebration of of what we have in common. It it celebrates our unity in Christ. And so we we, we share this meal because of our common faith in Christ. And the reality is, because of the blood of Christ that was shed for you and me, He calls us out and together, and then to be His visible body here on earth, the church. Peter, in his first letter, writes, We are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you can say, and I can say, that sounds really good. No. It's so that we can say, as the Scripture says, that we may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You see, when we are in Christ, when we have come to a place where we have put our trust and our confidence and our faith in Jesus and His work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we are brought into His family, the church, the people of God. And Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, is the great high priest. But then we're reminded too that we are priests. We are ministers. We, we have a responsibility to live and to serve and to love and to care and to pray for one another. And so it's about us, collectively, being the body of Christ. I have to tell you that a lot of times when it comes to writing a sermon and I'm trying to think of a, of a title, a catchy title, something that will, will, will sort of grab your attention but not give it all away and yet... After you've heard the message, you go, oh, I remember what that message was about. And I was having a hard time this week. 
Because I just thought, let us seemed boring. It just seems so plain and simple. And yet, the more I thought about it is, A, it comes right out of the scripture that we're looking at, but B, there's just something good about the word us. It's a great word. It's a simple word. It's not you or it's not me or I, but us. Together. It's what we are. It's what we do. And so as I thought about this message and on a Sunday when we're having communion, I wanted to just keep us thinking about this theme of the body of Christ. The church, living in community. And I have to say, this is probably one of my favorite subjects and topics. Maybe because I'm a pastor and feel called to serve the church, the local church. But because of Jesus and because of what he has done, we're called to follow him and, and, and not live in isolation from one another. Because together we are better. And this passage that Ryan read for us, just in Hebrews chapter 10, just helps us sort through some callings, I think, that we have on our lives. Or, or maybe some keys to just be in this healthy body of Christ. And, and the passage that was read for us, it, it, it follows several chapters where, where the writer of Hebrews has unpacked and explained some very important Christian theology. And the difficulty with kind of just landing here and starting in this place and not having previously studied that which went before it, we, we kind of miss it. And we, we don't immediately know the, the immediate context of it. And that's important because the very first word in the New International Version begins, Therefore, brothers and sisters. And as you've heard me probably say a few times at least, you want to help me with this? Whenever you see a therefore, you ask... What is the therefore therefore, right? Why is it there? It, it, it's, it's tying back to what we just read or what the writer has just been writing. He's been making an argument. He's been unpacking Christian theology. And then he says, in light of this theology or therefore. And it all has to do with the impact of Christ's death. Because of Jesus, things have changed. And, and, and I, I don't have the time to go into the whole aspect of what was happening in terms of Old Testament worship and, and, and how, you know, there was the Holy of Holies and only the priest could go into there. And even at that was once a year behind the curtain. And, and, and it was separate. And, and God was this distant being. And Jesus Christ and his death brings us into a personal relationship. And so we have all of this, inter, you know, I don't want to say it's introduction because it's there and it's relevant to the passage, but I didn't want to spend too much time there. But he just says, you know, we can enter the most holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. It's now a new way. This, this, this way didn't previously exist. It's now new. And it's a living way. And it was opened, us, opened up for us through the curtain. And all the symbolism that ties back to when, 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 uh, when Jesus was crucified and when he took his last breath and the curtain was torn in two. All of that sort of comes together here. And, and I know that there's, there's so much more to it than that. And it just seems really superficial to just touch on it uh, so simply. But just to all of this, just to keep going back to this. Because of Jesus' death on the cross. Because of Jesus things have changed. And we don't have to approach God in, in a way that was even removed 
from ordinary people with fear and trembling, but with boldness and with confidence. There's no hindrance to coming to God. There's this freedom now because of this new relationship with God. And the picture here is of all the believers now having an open invitation to come into this holy place because now all are priests and the holy place is wide open all because of the perfect sacrifice that was made through Jesus. So that's the introduction. So let me just take us through three important phrases in this passage. The first is this. Let us draw near to God. Or, as Ryan read in the New Living Translation, let us go right into the presence of God. Isn't that great? Just, let's go. Let's go right into the presence of God. There's nothing that hinders us, no obstacle, nothing that gets in, a, in, in our way. Let's just go right into the presence of God. This, as opposed maybe to drifting away. Because have you ever noticed in the Christian life, as you've tried to follow Jesus, it's easy to drift? It's easy to fall into disobedience, to do the things that we shouldn't do or to not do the things that we should do. I, for one, know that my heart can be prone to wander, to drift, to leave, to, 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 to you know, at times I, I wonder if it wasn't for the grace of God that maybe I could, I, I could just drift and never return. And maybe God would just be justified in saying, fine, have it your way. If you want to do that, walk on. I'm tired of you anyway. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's a gracious and compassionate God who abounds in mercy and he forgives our sin. And instead of saying go, he says come. He says come. I've made it possible for you to draw near, to come right into my presence. Now this might be stating the obvious, but I think it's just worth reminding ourselves. God is spirit. And God, as Spirit, is everywhere. So we don't have to come into this place and in, in, into this room or go anywhere else because wherever we go, He is already there. And so we simply acknowledge Him. His presence. No special formula needed. No chants or mantras to say. Just a simple willingness, a simple willingness to ask the question, God, are you here? It doesn't matter where you are. And you're going to get the same answer. Yes. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10 says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest ocean, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. You see, when we hear, let's draw near to God, I think sometimes our first thought is right away to think of a time and place. You know, maybe we've been influenced by movies we've seen in, in which a character who, who's trying to find God goes to some big cathedral or some church and he goes in there because he is going to ask God for something special. 
Or, or maybe you grew up in the church that had its own kind of holy of holies. And what was it called? The sanctuary. Right? It was, don't go in there. Be careful. Strange things happen there. And we start to think that God has a place that He dwells. And so we, we, we come to the church building thinking that maybe then we're going to draw near to God. And, and sometimes I have to admit that even songs confuse us sometimes. Because we, 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 we might even somehow invite God's presence to, you know, to come and fill this place. The reality is, He's never left. He's there all the time. And He's the one who says, come. And so we just need to acknowledge that He is everywhere. There's another piece to this, and I don't want to try to wrap our minds around this one for a second. Because here's something that I think is even more important. If we are in Christ, Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The the Scripture says that the believer now is the temple of God. The Holy Spirit has come and lives within us. And and I think we need to live a little bit more with that reality. Because I know how easy it is even for me just to kind of go on with my day and not, not think anything of it. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. God's presence is real. And He's everywhere present. And so we draw near. And we draw near in a worship service like this. That's a good place. It's a good start. Because I think when a whole group of believers like this gathers together and we sing together, I think it's powerful. And I don't know if it's just been me, but I feel like in recent weeks, maybe even for the last number of months, I feel like our congregational singing has stepped it up a little bit. Maybe it's just because I sit in front of the Hammers over here and they're singing nice and loud and clear, but, but there's something more. I've sensed that a few times where it's just like, yes. And I just think that, you know, the Scriptures, God inhabits the praises of His people. And so there's this, this greater sense and awareness of His presence that can fill a place like this. And I love that. When we sing, when we really sing, So can I encourage you? Don't hold back. Just sing. Because when we reunite our voices, I believe something incredible happens. But remember now, drawing near to God, coming right into His presence, just isn't limited to a worship service. Pastor Ken recently reminded us that that we need to cultivate lives in which we practice the daily presence of God. In everything, at any time, we just pray. And so we, 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 we draw near in worship. We draw near in prayer. We draw near when we read His Word. And, and it just comes to a place where we just, we just want to know God so desperately that we set aside times that we can connect with Him and that, that we pray then continually in the midst of all of the demands and activities of the day. Something as, that came to me that I was thinking about as I was pre- preparing this, as I was reading one, Psalm 139 this week, And then it it just struck me that I'm going to take some liberty with this and kind of rewrite it. 
I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. So far, so good, right? Because it's exactly the same as what we just read earlier. If I go up to the bedroom to read a book, you are there. If I go down into the basement to watch a movie, you are there. If I go out in the morning for a run, or to catch the bus, or while I'm running to catch the bus, or drive to work, you are there. If I go on vacation, lay by the ocean, climb a mountain, lay my head to rest in a tent or in a trailer, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Friends, let's draw near to God. My prayer is that He would fill me and you and all of us with such a deep desire and yearning to know Him and to go to deeper places with God that drawing near to Him becomes just a natural, spontaneous, regular thing and it doesn't feel like it's unbelievably more difficult than it ought to be. It just happens. So let's draw near to God. Secondly, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Or as the New Living Translation puts this, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. And the writer here in Hebrews uses the present tense, which, which emphasizes the call to hold on is an ongoing call. It's always there. We've got to hold on to the hope that we have. And the choice of words used here adds an intensity to this holding on. The NIV translates the Greek word as unswervingly. And, and the New Living Translation uses the phrase tightly without wavering. This, this word in the Greek literally means that which does not bend or that which is straight. And this simply means that we, we keep a tight grip on the Christian faith the hope that we have, keeping it from slipping away. And the words used here carry the idea of stability. That whatever may happen in our lives, we're not going to be moved by the changing circumstances around us. And the Christian's hope is grounded in the person and work of Jesus. Eugene Peterson, who is probably best known as a translator of the message, has written many books, but one of his first books was called a long obedience in the same direction. And I've always loved that book. Because without getting into the content of that book, it's, it's, it's probably enough to just say that it's about discipleship. It's about becoming more like Jesus in, in an instant society. Because our tendency is, we want to be like Jesus now. Right? I want it now. But a lot of times it's just Continually, over time, being obedient, always following and going in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And it starts with a resolve and a commitment to obedience. And then making a commitment to stay into it for the long haul. And to stay on it unswervingly to the end. 
It means that we're tenacious because we have a task that calls us away from other distractions. Simply put, and again putting in the context of these verses, since Jesus died for us and forgives us and loves us, shouldn't that be enough then to motivate our love and our service? Even though there may be times of challenge and difficulty? You see, often I've seen believers encounter real obstacles in their lives and, and in painful circumstances. And they get angry with God. And even that is okay. But then there's a point where they just say, you know what? I've simply had enough. Enough with God. And they walk away. To hold unswervingly demands a choice to be faithful. And our hope is grounded in the faithfulness of God. That's what the verse says. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. We hang on to the faithfulness of God. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? As one commentator writes, he says this, Here rests our ultimate basis for perseverance, for sticking in it for the long haul. Ultimately, we do not have the resources within ourselves to stay with the goal God has set before us. We must choose. We must tighten down our resolve. We must hold. But at the end of the day, we must rest in the goodness, the resolve, and the faithfulness of God who has promised an inheritance to His children We hold on even as He holds us and takes us all the way to the end of the path. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And thirdly, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And again from the New Living Translation, think of ways to encourage one another, I love this, to outbursts of love and good deeds. And following this, there's actually two more kind of let us phrases, but they really are part of this third one. The two other phrases are simply this. Let us not give up meeting together and let us encourage one another. And I'll say a little bit more about both of those in a second. But the writer is talking about a life of mutual encouragement now. Where followers of Jesus care for one another and they stimulate one another spiritually and morally. First, I want to just highlight this little word, consider, where he says, let us consider. This is about taking notice, about paying attention, about looking closely, or we, we just simply think about it. It is about conscious activities where we deliberately and intentionally engage in activity that helps ourselves and others on the journey of faith. There's another word here that we need to look at a little closer. The New International Version uses the word spur. And and other translations use motivate one another or stir up one another. But there is a real sense with whatever word you use that it might even involve a little bit of irritation. Provoke or incite are also similar words. 
You see, the Greek word for stir up comes from a word that was used originally to describe the effects of a high fever on a person. Uh, literally, it was a feverish activity, like, like stirring a bowl of cream until it becomes butter. Or another word that we could use would be to, to whip up. And the command demands immediate, energetic, and creative action. But somehow, whenever I was thinking of this word spur on, I couldn't help but think of a, of a literal spur. You know the ones that horse riders put on the, the back of their boots? What do they use it for? Right? Spur the horse on. Motivate him. Incite him. Provoke him a little bit. Let's move along. Nothing to see here. Let's go, right? So this image of kicking each other in the rear is hard for me to shake. But I also think that that might be a little bit of what God is saying to us in this verse. Yes, it might even be a little bit confrontational because living in community such as the church sometimes requires confrontation or speaking the truth in love. When a brother or sister is resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes it requires that we spur one another on, right? Or maybe another follower of Jesus is, is moving in the wrong direction and needs to be turned around. And we come along and we spur them on a little bit, right? Or maybe somebody's gotten a little lazy and idle and needs to get up and take some responsibility. Right? We spur them on. You see, some people might be neglecting to meet together. Right? And that's why the writer says, Come on, let's, let's not give up meeting together. If you're, if you're not meeting together, come on. Why are we in church on Sunday? <laughs> right? I hope we all walk around like this a little bit, like a line dance or something. You just get that sense of, come on, let's do this. Let's not give up meeting together. Why? Because it's a fatal mistake to pull away from meeting, each, meeting with other believers. In fact, the words that are used here carry the idea of abandonment or forsaking. So listen to this. When you choose not to meet with other believers, you are robbing them of your presence. Now, doesn't that make you feel important? That when you're not meeting with other believers, they're missing out. And so are you. This meeting can take many forms. An obvious one is, is a worship service like this. But, but I don't think it's at all that's all that, that, that this is meant. Years ago, you know, the church would be like Sunday school, there'd be church, there'd be evening service, there'd be Wednesday night prayer meeting, there'd be a Bible study on another night. And oftentimes, you know, this verse would be used, hey, don't give up meeting together. And so we're going to put you into this frantic, uh, you know, frantic level of church activity. It's not about the church activity. It's about being in relationship with one another. It's about being in community. And so, yes, come to church. Don't give up that. And brunch. Stay for brunch. Because it's an important place to connect. Get involved in a home group. 
this fall, if you're not in a home group, get involved in the home group. Because home groups are vital for deeper connections. We also encourage triads, three men or three women, meeting for accountability. Spur one another on. Kick them under the table. Right? Encouragement. And there is a purpose to all of our spurring, he says. It's to love and to good deeds. And so we encourage one another. And when you think about it, encouragement cannot take place in isolation. So we gather together for mutual encouragement and to express deep care and concern. Listen, friends, we're the people of God. Let's do this. It's been up there for you a while to think about it, but let me draw the analogy that I was going to close with. And we'll close with this. Anyone who's maybe ever played on a team, football, hockey, volleyball, basketball, baseball, whatever, okay? Whenever they're about to take the ice, the field, the court, they gather together, maybe in the dressing room or after the anthem is sung, they put their hands in the middle and someone, maybe the captain or the quarterback or another leader on the team, gathers the rest of the team around and they gather around and they have a team cheer. I like NFL football. I don't know how many other people like NFL football, but you see these highlights of, a, of, of before the game, the pre-game kind of warm-up where, again, the quarterback or another leader on the team is like, he's got this, he's got like a motivational sermon going. And they're all jumping up and down because what's the message that they're trying to convey to the rest of the team is, let's do this. We can do this. We can beat those other guys. Friends, we're the people of God. The body of Christ. We gather around right here. And we put our hands in the middle. And we say, let's do this. Let's draw near to God. Let's, let's hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Let's consider, let's think about ways that we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. To keep meeting together. To encourage one another. Because if we're not meeting together, how can we encourage one another? And a sermon like this, it's not, I'm not a motivational speaker. But I just want to point out the obvious. That if Jesus did this for us, we can do this for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of what Jesus has done for us. May that truth be burned deep within our hearts, our minds, our souls, to our very being. And that it would provide all the motivation that we need to draw near to you. To hold on to the hope that we profess even when we face challenging times. And Lord, use us in a loving way to spur one another on. For your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.